Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, as we continue our sermon series this morning in uh, the history of redemption, I, I do hope that you will keep your Bibles open with me as we give attention there. We're in week 12 of this History of Redemption sermon series, uh, walking through the Bible uh, reading plan at BibleTogether.com, and we're tracing God's revelation, and let's be clear about that, we're tracing the story that God has to tell to, to reveal his divine, sovereign, gracious purpose to redeem a people for himself out from among a rebellious creation. This is God's purpose in these things. And as, I, as we walk through these passages, we could have titled this series, uh, Jeremiah's Favorite Passages from the Bible. Uh, and we're just going to kind of spend 17 weeks in that. They are. These, these incredible scriptures. I, I remember the first time I actually gave attention to this uh, scripture in Job. I was actually challenged by my atheist uh, English teacher uh, in my junior year in high school to go home and read Job because he was a literature professor and he knew this was great literature. And I went home and I just sat down at about 3.30 in the afternoon and I just read the whole thing uh, and was just blown away by what I found in what my atheist high school teacher had pointed me to. And I, I want to go back to him today and say, will you read it now? And what a powerful, powerful word. Uh, last week, we considered God's covenant with humanity, God's pattern of a unilateral generosity of goodness, mercy, and grace to a people who otherwise have rejected him as king and God. So we have a people who have rejected God, and we have God's movement toward them in covenant in unilateral generosity. It's unilateral because like, rebels don't turn in worship. They rebel. That's what they do. It's, what our, it's been our business to do from Adam and Eve. God's covenant is to come to them at all and then to come to them with the hope of redemption. This week, we go back to one of the, what is the oldest book in the Scriptures. We go back to a book that considers the most ancient of questions common to mankind, a, a book that considers God's almighty and perfect ordering of the universe, and yet our experience of chaos, our experience of disorder, suffering on this side of the fall. We have an almighty God, and we experience disorder and chaos. I don't even have to ask the question, do I? We know what the question is in these two things. And so let's go to our God and ask him for help, that we can reconcile the reality that we know with the reality that is true about him. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help. We know disorder, we know chaos, we know suffering, we know trial. Not even as a distant uh, concept, 
We don't have to become philosophical about this. Many of us know this even in recent days. We know the reality of disorder and suffering. And so, Lord, I pray that you who are almighty would be gracious to speak by your very word. We know it's a bold thing. It's a bold thing that Job even asks these questions. It's a terrifying thing, but your word has recorded them. And so it's right that we would give attention and that we would go to you with our disordered thoughts, with our chaotic lives, and ask you, Lord, is there something the Almighty has to say? Thank you for your grace and your word. Thank you for your work by your spirit to work in the midst of your church this morning. And so we pray these things in that almighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's begin with the backstory of Job. Some here may be familiar, some may not be. I know that myself in high school, though I'd spent my, all my years in church, I wasn't familiar really with what was going on in Job. Job begins with a man named, wait for it, Job. And he was living in the land of Uz. If you want to go back to the first chapter, you can find some of the things that, that happened back there in Uz. Here at the beginning of this book, we begin, we're told right away in the very first verses of Job that Job was blameless and upright. Now, how about that? Job, blameless and upright. He walks in a manner that honors the Lord with the right order of his steps. Though he experiences great blessing and prosperity in all of his ways, in his uprightness, in his blamelessness, in the right ordering of his steps, even so, even though he experiences great blessing, he goes before the Lord, we're told in the first paragraph of the book, that he goes before the Lord early in the morning to worship the Lord and to make sacrifice to him. So here we have this upright and blameless man who yet worships the Lord. He knows what the covenant of the law would later reveal. The law has not yet come, and yet here's Job worshiping the Lord and making sacrifice. He knew that though he labored to walk in the ways of the Lord, to, to walk in his blessing that would be revealed later in the covenant, Surely he and his family will fail at some point. He knows this. Even if only in their hearts, they will not be blameless. And they will reveal their need for a sacrificial atonement. See, Job knew this. He knew what would be revealed in the law. And Job's word is ordered. His, his walk along the way is an ordered walk. He walks in paths of righteousness. His children feast regularly together under the blessing of the Lord. He, he worships the Lord morning after morning, calling out to the Lord for forgiveness of sin. Friends, this is a rightly ordered life that Job is living. Everything seems rightly ordered in the world. What happens next gives us a glimpse into an aspect of creation that otherwise remains hidden to Job and to us really most of humanity. The book of Job records a conversation. It's a conversation that takes also place in chapter 1, a conversation between God and Satan. And though the record of this conversation itself reveals a, a significant order in the hidden spiritual order, what happens there in that well-ordered conversation throws Job's life into absolute chaos. 
suffering disarray. Satan, the ancient enemy of mankind, he presents himself before the Lord. In response to the Lord's questioning, Satan reveals that he has been roaming the earth. We know that from elsewhere in Scripture. We have this testimony of this this enemy of mankind that roams the earth. He's seen Job, and he has seen the Lord's protective blessing upon Job and upon Job's household. He sees a right and beautiful, blessed order. And Satan suggests that the Lord's protective blessing has created a false veneer over Job's experience of reality. If the Lord were to remove the blessing, surely Job would curse the Lord to his face, Satan says. The Lord agrees to remove the blessing. He removes the protective blessing and, and his hand from uh, him uh, over and, 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 and to give to Satan what he uh, intends to do. In the coming chapters, we see that all manner of suffering is brought upon Job, because the Lord removes his protective blessing upon him. Job's world is turned from order into chaos. I think that is is a theme that runs its way throughout the book. It's not just moved from, from blessing to curse. He's moved from order to chaos. Over the course of many chapters, Job makes his complaint known to the Lord. I mean, right? I used to know order. I used to know blessing. We used to know feasting and sacrifice and worship before you. This morning, we'll consider Job's complaint. And then two questions that the Lord proposes to Job in answer to to Job's question. And then finally, we'll close with what our reading was this morning with Job's response to the Lord's own question and how this response might bring order to our own souls today. Job, sitting right in the midst of the chaos, finds a great and transcendent order. May that be so with us today. We begin this morning in Job 31. And in Job 31, verses 35 through 37, we have Job's complaint. Now, it's kind of hard. We'd have to read the whole thing, you know? And let me tell you, as one who has sat and read the whole thing, it takes a little while. It's worth it. Make no mistake. I commend it to you. Uh, Let a pastor this time commend to you that you go home 3.30 and start reading. Instead of afternoon cartoons today, you can, as I still watched in high school, you can read Job. And you'll find it amazing. But it's difficult to come to Job's complaint because it's not necessarily just stated in one place. He makes the complaint multiple times. In Job 31, 5 through 35 through 37, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps in the face of the Lord's supposed accusation against Job, I mean, surely he stands accused as one who is suffering so greatly under the judgment of God, right? Like a prince, I would approach him. He says, I could answer every single complaint, Lord. This is the climactic summary of Job's complaint. Job is essentially saying that though he has received all the judgment, he still hasn't even seen the indictment brought against him. What are the charges, Lord? What are the charges? He says, look at verse 35. 
let the Almighty answer me. He hasn't wavered in his understanding of, of, of who he's talking to. This is the same one to whom he made great sacrifice. What are the charges? He would give account. If he's wrong, he'll gladly bear the curse. But to bear the curse without even hearing the accusations is more than Job can bear. And Job is confident that, that he has walked in righteousness. He spent his days, day after day, with his friends coming to him, making accusation over and over, more accusers than comforters. He spent his time with them, and yet he maintains his case. He has been blameless. He has been upright. Now he turns his case directly to the Lord, the Almighty, he calls him. Essentially, if, I have to walk, if I've walked in righteousness, why do I suffer this suffering? If the world is rightly ordered and I have walked in that order, why am I experiencing such suffering chaos? There's more to this complaint than that simple yet profound problem of evil. Perhaps you've heard that the book of Job is a, addresses the problem of evil. And evil is a problem. Why do the righteous suffer, you might ask? At the heart of it, we know that there are none who are truly righteous. I mean, it's kind of a trite answer. Why do the righteous suffer? Well, there's no such thing. That's why. I mean, are you righteous? Well, that's self-righteous. And I would say, yeah, that's a good argument. It's a very good argument, actually. But Job is called blameless and upright. Even though Job made sacrifice to the Lord at the beginning of the book for his sin. So clearly, he's not actually blameless and right, though he walks in these things in the common manner of his day-to-day. The issue is more subtly common. The issue that Job has to present to us is more day-to-day than simply, why do the righteous suffer? Well, nobody's righteous. Job had experienced a world in which, though creation still was under curse, and he knows this, he experiences it. Job had experienced a world in which, though creation was under curse, evil was still restrained. Hear that. Do I need to say it again? Though Job knew he lived in a fallen world, he experienced that fallen world in which evil was restrained. I'm sure at times Job stubbed his toe in the morning. And that early morning reminder is a reminder, Job, there is curse, there is the fall, the world is not rightly ordered to perfection, not all is perfect, but there is a certain order to things. And now, Job finds that that sense of order has come crashing down on him. This is not a mere stubbing of a toe in the morning. It is an indication that all is chaos and disorder. I've experienced this sort of disorienting sense a great deal in my own life lately. As a child, the world seemed quite ordered. Some of you may, may feel some of this. I grew up in a Midwestern town, and everyone knows that Midwestern towns are, are perfect. They're idyllic. And that was actually my experience of it. It was a beautiful place to live, a great deal of order. People were hospitable. Neighbors were friendly. Even the grumpy neighbor. Yeah, you know that one. Even the grumpy neighbor was a moment for excitement in our neighborhood. You know, the ball goes over the fence at the grumpy neighbor's house. And everyone's like, oh, are you going to get I'm not getting it. I'm not going in there. When she comes out the door, I don't want her to let the dog after me, you know? And yet it was a certain amount of excitement and joy. We got that ball and we'd hop the fence back. And, and the world seemed ordered. 
My point is this. I grew up with a basic idea that I knew the world wasn't perfect. There is such a thing as a grumpy neighbor, but she never quite gets you (laughs) before you get back over the fence. There's a certain order to creation, even this side of the fall. Yet with an almost imperceptible subtlety over the course of my years, I've noticed cracks in that veneer. Cracks in my own Christian understanding of the world, that the world is, yes, there's the fall, but there's still a basic right order to things. Let me give you a a bit of a silly example. Growing up, I remember going to cheap fast food restaurants with my mom. All right, now understand I was going on dates with my mom, man. And these weren't cheap fast food restaurants. These were high-class joints with their burgers and fries. And I thought it was amazing. One of the things that happened is my mom knew everybody in town. And we went to these fast food restaurants. And we rode on the bus to get there. And I knew the bus driver. And he talked kindly to me. And if we forgot our quarter to put in the slot to get to where we were going, he said, that's all right. We'll get you next time. And we showed up. And we made our order. And they knew half of it. And there was a certain order to things, and we would joke with the people that we made exchanges with. But I remember late in high school and early in college, I went to a drive through window. I remember it. It made a mark in me. I went to a drive through window, I believe it was in Louisville, Kentucky. And the people at that drive through window were rude. <laughs> they, they said, what do you want? I made my order. They said, money at the window. I took it. I drove off, and I thought, that's messed up. <laughs> I mean, they're supposed to say, what would you like, sir? I'd love to get it for you. Oh, that's a good choice, sir. That's great. Let's... And, then, and then they give me the food, and hey, enjoy it. I'm like, hey, you enjoy your day, you know? And there's supposed to be like this right order that I experienced all these years at fast food restaurants. And then, as I've gone along, I've recognized, man, that day's been dead for a long time. And there isn't a fast food restaurant that I can go to anymore that says anything than maybe here's your food, if they look up at all, and an occasional, you know, my pleasure. And I'm like, I don't believe it. <laughs> right? My, my sort of childlike veneer of an understanding of a world that, though fallen, I, I had a good theological understanding, was beginning to expose that actually this place might be actually broken in far more profound ways than how I get treated and a drive through window and how I would treat others, make no mistake. In the years since, especially in the past five years, I have a growing and increasing sense of disorientation, of of dislocation. Like I thought I lived in one place. Like I thought I lived in, in one world. And then like the world seems like it's changed. And let me share this with you. I don't think it's actually changed. I think my eyes might be beginning to see what's been there the whole time. There's a certain veneer of order, but underneath of it is the reality of the fall. The reality of a world that I'm living in is far darker, far disoriented and evil than I had previously experienced. And some of you sitting here are saying, that's right, naive little pastor man. And I'm not going to argue with you. Some of you have known it for much of your lives, that there is a disorder underneath of the surface of the veneer of order, and you know it in ways that I'm just beginning to discover. I think this is essentially the question 
of Job. It's a question that rises when we come into contact with the reality that humanity has an enemy that prowls the earth. And we ask, when we are confronted with the reality of evil, we ask, is God still God? Is there still an Almighty who brings order from the heavenly places into the chaos that has broken through? If he does, if there is still a God, does he bring order? Job has some questions coming his way. In Job 38, I want you to turn with me. We're going to look at just the beginnings of each of these passages for just a moment. In Job chapter 38, beginning at verses 1 and 2, Then the Lord answered Job, out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. What an interesting question. The Lord knows Job. He's seen him, but his question for Job is, who is this? I mean, the Lord knew Job in this passage before Job really knew the Lord. And yet Job's question is, who is this? You see, Job thinks he knows who he is. He thinks that he's the guy whose life has been thrown into disorder, even though he really hasn't done anything wrong. Job thinks he knows who he is, and the Lord has a question for him. In one respect, Job is right. He is right in that he's done nothing wrong, and his friends have been wrong for chapter upon chapter to accuse him. But he is also wrong about the nature of the world that he is living in. He thought they had a beat on how things worked in the world. He thought that he knew the basic order of things. He's sure that God should be putting things back into order the way they used to be. The way they used to be rightly ordered. And I think the Lord is coming to Job to saying, I don't think that you understood even how things were. The Lord is about to show Job that he has no real perspective on reality. He, he knows neither the beginning nor the end of things he's about to launch into for two chapters. He knows neither the beginning, he wasn't there, and on his own he won't be there at the end. He's only experienced this brief, finite moment of time. And he's decided to extrapolate from his little, tiny, finite moment of time. He's decided to extrapolate an understanding of the whole of the universe, Job would do. The first issue that the Lord has with Job is that Job has no understanding. Job may know that he has been righteous, that he has walked uprightly, and he's not wrong, The Lord doesn't argue with this. It's the Lord himself who says there's none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil back in chapter 1. But that does not mean that Job is fit to bring true order to the universe. Look at what happens in the next few verses. Verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. I mean, you have understanding You understand right order. You were there in the beginning, right, Job? Verse 5, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, and who stretched the line upon the foundations of the world? 
Verse 6, on what, base, on what were its bases sunk? Who laid the cornerstone of the universe? I mean, you were there, right, Job? I mean, you understand the right order of things. And this is where I get that concept of right order, right here. Right at the beginning, where does God go in his question to Job? There is a right order. I was there. You weren't. You've walked uprightly, but you do not truly understand the right order. Order of things, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And you weren't there and you don't know the song, Job. The passage continues until Job chapter 40, okay? Question after question. I think the point is this. The Lord alone is he who has established the order of creation. I'll say it again. The Lord alone is he who has established the right order of creation. There is no one else, and certainly not Job, and certainly not me, and certainly not you. Who is Job to give counsel to the Lord on how to bring back order to his chaos? I go back to my own sense of increasing disorientation in a deeply broken world. I've had many conversations with people about this. I know you know what I'm talking about. I'm right to feel like the world has broken. I'm right to feel that like, there's something deeply wrong. I'm right to sense that there's a deep, mysterious, spiritual, listen, evil in the world. But I lack all understanding to suggest to the Lord that I know how to put things right again. And I would simply ask for the veneer back. The good old days of the Midwest is what I would ask for. Make no mistake, I would make things right in the same way Job would. Just restore my fortunes, grant me the veneer of blessing and order, and I will be okay with things again. But the enemy would still be on the loose to roam. The plan and the purpose of the Lord is far more comprehensive than the restoration of a veneer of order. He has, he who is there at the beginning has a plan to restore the cornerstone to rightly order every bit of fabric in the universe to his divine purpose and plan. In the Lord's first question to Job, he demonstrates that Job lacks understanding, and that's just reality. It's not moral failure or a great evil that Job lacks understanding. The Lord is simply telling Job to again gain a proper perspective on his place in the world. But what comes next is far more serious. Turn over with me to Job chapter 40. Verse 1. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with the Lord, let him answer it. Essentially the question is this. Will you? One who lacks understanding, who is not there to understand the order and and has no hope in and of himself to remain. Will you condemn my purpose and plan for the restoration of order? Essentially, the Lord is asking Job, how is your complaint holding up so far? How's it going? See, the Lord hasn't actually answered Job's question. He's just saying, are you still going to make your complaint with the same boldness that you did before? The Lord is taking issue with the idea that a man has any sort of place to question the creator's design. The Lord's answer to Job's question thus far has been, 
you're accusing me of throwing your blameless and upright world into disorder. Where were you when I established the perfect order to begin with? Job's question has a certain validity to it from his finitude. But he has not yet understood not only himself, he hasn't truly understood the nature of the Almighty. Here's Christopher Ashe, a commentator on Job. He writes, amazingly and soberingly, to the man whose wealth God has confiscated, whose family God has taken away, whose greatness God has removed, and whose health God has ruined, God says in summary, I have made no mistake. I know exactly what I am doing in your life and in every detail of the government of the world. My counsel is perfect. I've gotten nothing wrong. And Job's scratching his head like, it sure feels like it. He says, yeah, I know, I know. I know, you're small, you're finite. You weren't there, you don't even understand perfect order. But do you know what it is to be almighty? How can a man who only knows his tiny corner of, of infinity, to which he is constrained by his nature, not by some failure, not by some fault, but by his nature as a created thing, how will he contend with the Almighty? What great wisdom will he now make an argument to the maker? See, Job sees his error. He sees his error in the next verses, in verses 4 and 5. Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I spoke once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He's made his complaint, and he's done. Job takes a rightful seat. He acknowledges his finitude, and he spoke what he ought not to have spoken. We're not good at the hand over the mouth, right? We're not good at speaking, at ceasing to speak in recognition of our finitude. In the book Paralandra by C.S. Lewis, Ransom, the, the, the main character throughout the story meets the green lady. And the green lady says to Ransom, who has admitted, Ransom has admitted that there is something about which he does not know, and yet he continues to speak. She says, and you had nothing to say about it, and yet made nothing up into words. I think that's like, yeah, most of what we have to say is making nothing, our lack of understanding, up into, you know, words. And many words have been written, many words have been said. And Job admits here something that is uncommon to man. He admits he's ignorant. He's small. He lacks understanding, but he has not yet admitted that he was wrong to accuse the Lord. He's admitted that he's small, but he hasn't yet spoken trust in the Lord. He has not fully withdrawn his complaint, and so the Lord would continue to address him. Verse 7, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Job has been bold to make an accusation, but now let's see how he stands up before the Lord. Will, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Will, 
will Job stand up in all of the knowledge of his corner of finitude and turn to the Almighty to put the Almighty in the wrong? To prove that the Almighty is the one who is disordered, who has brought chaos. It isn't only that Job lacks understanding, it's that Job questions and makes false accusations. It's one thing to confess to the Lord that you don't understand sovereign providence. Like I would recommend that that should fill our songs, and in so many cases it does. I do not understand sovereign providence, Lord. But Job, in asserting the righteousness of his position, is doing so in a manner that asserts the injustice of God's position. What follows in the coming verses are an invitation to Job to this. Job. You rule the world then. You rule the world. Look at Job 40, verse 10. Job, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. You wise Job, be the righteous judge of the world in the following verses. It's one thing to be blameless and upright in creation. That's Job. Blameless and upright in his moment of finitude. It's another to have established the order of creation itself. To merely be upright, to align with the righteous order is one thing, but to transcend the righteous order in dignity and splendor, that's the creator. Who is this blameless and upright man who accuses Lord Almighty, God says? The following two chapters are filled with descriptions of Leviathan and Behemoth. We don't have time to look at them. Again, I commend you. Go and look at them. Consider them. Many commentators agree that in the context of most ancient literature in which the seas where the Leviathan dwells pretend evil and chaos, in which the massive creature as massive as the behemoth pretends terrible destruction. They are images of chaos and disorder and evil. The Lord is establishing himself as the one who reigns over the Leviathan, who reigns over the behemoth. He is the one who restrains evil. Evil is not a compliment to the Almighty, a a sort of a yin and yang sort of situation. No, the Lord is sovereign in restraining evil in this fallen world. From Job's finite perspective, in which he lost everything in such a horrific disaster, the Lord, from Job's perspective, brought chaos to his order. What Job does not see is the hidden workings of the heavenly places. It's the Lord who all the time was restraining the evil. It's the Lord whose gracious intervention has purchased every moment of Job's peace, his blessing. What Job has experienced in disaster is the order of the world. On this side of the fall, when the Lord withdraws his hand of favor and his just judgment of death runs its course right through Job's family. The Lord is the bringer of order. He's the restrainer of evil. The Lord invites Job to restrain the Leviathan. Go ahead, 
Restrain the Leviathan. Restrain the behemoth. He calls upon Job to deal with their mighty strength. This king over all the sons of pride, he concludes in chapter 41. It would seem that the Leviathan and the behemoth are are creaturely representations for the ravages of Satan on the earth. The ravages of disordered, chaotic evil. Job has experienced the rampage of the enemy right through his household, and he's found himself powerless to subdue him. Job is no master over Leviathan nor behemoth, nor Satan nor himself. For us, we do well to admit two things. First, there is a mighty power of evil and pride loose in the land. Our little Midwestern upbringing... Whatever veneer of order you have experienced in your life, perhaps in our finitude, has robbed us of a right perspective that there is a reality of evil in the land. And every once in a while, whether it's in the news or in our lives, we begin to see, oh, that was there, wasn't it? We're right to have the experience of disorientation in the world. We, we in and of ourselves, are powerless against the Leviathan and the behemoth. We cannot restrain him, but he's there. Second, though the power of evil is mighty, the Lord maintains a mysterious to us order. We're not there. We don't see into the throne room of heaven from which the Lord reigns. We don't see, we don't understand the order of creation nor his governance of this present darkness. But he's still governing. He is still sovereign. He is working according to a divine order that is not accessible to the finite mind of man. Apart from revelation. We can be assured of these things. The might of destruction is real, and the Lord has not withdrawn his sovereign rule. These are the two answers that the Lord gives to Job. In chapter 42, Job gives his response. This is what Job does. He makes a two-part confession, followed by a final word of repentance. In Job 42, he says in verse 2, I know I can't do all things. In other words, that, that Leviathan behemoth are too much for me. Job uses the words, I know. He who has no understanding knows something now. He'll build the ground of his understanding, neither in his sense of order under the protective blessing of the Lord from his little momentary finite experience, and he will not build his ground of understanding in a sense of disorder in which the Lord's restraint of evil is removed. Rather, he is going to rebuild what he knows and build his confidence on the reality of the Lord's sovereignty. He's going to start there this time. He's not saying, can we go back to the days? No, he's saying, I need to go forward to the reality that the Lord is sovereign. I would suggest to you that this is where we have to begin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right understanding of the universe begins with this. The Lord alone is God. Who is this? God asked Job a question, verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? You remember the Lord asked Job that question. Having heard all that the Lord has to say, Job is prepared to confess 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not know, understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I do not know. I think Job exhibits for us something profound. That in, it's good in light of revelation to admit that we know and that we do not know. That what we know is what he has said. What he has not said, we do not know. What we know about God, we know because he has revealed it. We don't conceive of God. We don't imagine God. God must be received. Having confessed our dependence upon revelation, we confess that we can't depend upon our own thoughts. We, we must be conformed to the mind of God as it's revealed in his word. Verse 4 The Lord has asked, here, I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And Job's response, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job was bold to question the Lord, not merely to ask him questions about what he was willing to confess in his ignorance, but to call into question the very goodness of the Lord's judgments. This was the nature of the first sin of mankind. The Lord had given the whole of the garden to Adam and Eve, right? And and he'd given them just this one command, "Don't, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. But the deceptions of the serpent, that first Leviathan, that first behemoth, Adam and Eve, called the good command of the Lord into question. As creatures there, Adam and Eve did not know But by revelation, they ought to have known not to eat. But they did. Not because they didn't know the truth that God had revealed to them, but because they did not believe that he was good. And this is the issue. We must confess that are we to know, it will be because the Lord has spoken. And what the Lord has spoken, it is good. So too, Job is ignorant of much. The Lord has brought Job to understand this, that that a creature, that as a creature, there is much that he does not know. And that's by nature. It's by design. The, The point that the Lord presses with Job and that Job confesses here is not merely that he's failed to understand, but that he was wrong to accuse and that the need is not to say, I didn't know, but to say, I was wrong. I repent. I am the one who is in need before you. He says, I despise myself. I I stood up tall, all kinds of upright. I still didn't measure up. And I repent. It's not enough to simply realize that you don't measure up to the Almighty. We have to confess our ignorant, self-righteous overestimation of ourselves. As we close, I want to bring us to the same confession. I would do so by bringing just three things to our mind. The first is this, revelation, true knowledge and understanding. Look at verse five again. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eyes see you. I heard, but now I see. It's interesting that Job says, now my eyes have seen you. We have no indication in the book that the Lord actually appeared to Job. We don't. Repeatedly, we're told that the Lord spoke. Repeatedly, we're told that the Lord answered, but not that he appeared to him. Have you seen the Lord by the eyes of his own self-revelation? This is the amazing thing about God. It's one thing to hear a rumor 
about God, some philosophical reflection or imagination or story about God like the counsel that his friends bring. It's another thing to hear from the Lord and that gives sight to our soul. Will you give attention? Will you taste? What does the scripture say? Will you taste and see that the Lord is good? Second question, we can't not ask this one. What does the Lord do about evil? What does he do anyway? They have dogs in the countryside of Mongolia, and many of you know that I've been there. I've been there a few times. And walking through the countryside, you see very few dogs running free. And when you do, you're nervous. Make no mistake. The, The dogs that are there are chained to owner's doors because they aren't pets. They're guards, and they're very effective. I haven't walked up to a door that has a dog chained there, but one by invitation. Each time I walk down the road past a house and hear the growl of a dog, I think to myself, actually, I think to myself, is that dog chained? It's the only thing that matters in the whole universe. Not, is the dog good? Is it friendly? Oh, is it a golden? No. (laughs) Is it chained? Again, Christopher Ash, speaking of Leviathan and Behemoth, he says, now this is the point. A walker enters a farmyard and is terrified by wild dogs, yapping, snarling, snapping around his ankles. He's scared, and the question he is bound to ask is, are these dogs restrained in any way? I hear news of evil. At times I have seen and experienced evil's bite. And my and Job's question needs to be, is evil in any way restrained? The longer I live in this world, the more disoriented I become. I see more evil. I realize that The just judgment of the Lord upon sin is actually a just judgment. And the more I've come to ask of Leviathan and Behemoth, are these beasts restrained or will they rampage until it's all done? Does God who brought the first and perfect order to creation at its founding, who said to the wilders, this far you will come and no further, is he who laid the foundations of the world, in light of the fall and rebellion of mankind, is he able to bring a restraining order? Does the Lord Almighty yet remain having a restraining hold so that the promises of blessing, curse, and redemption are sure and genuine hope? I can tell you the sentence that has brought me the most hope in the world in the deepest places of despair at the confrontation of evil. And listen, the places where I have confronted it the most is when I look here the deepest. And I find just where this evil springs from. And I find Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who established the world with rightly ordered foundations will bring it to perfect order at the last day in Christ Jesus. Which leads us to this last thing. The mystery actually has been revealed. We're ignorant no longer, not by 
curious reflection and philosophical interpretation, but by revelation. The restraint of the enemy, the evil one, has been hinted at throughout Scripture, from the scattering of the pride at Babel to the crushing of the head of the serpent in the garden, the defeat of the arrogant hand of Pharaoh, the revelation of God's good way in the law and all the covenants that are revealing order. We have an impression that there is an order to come and a restraining of evil, but in all these, the final right and good order remains elusive every time. The Lord keeps demonstrating his sovereign providence, but he hasn't revealed his final design in any of these. It's not until Jesus that the mystery of God's dealing with evil is finally revealed. You have a question about the problem of evil. So does Job, so do I. But the answer is God the Son hanging on a bloody cross. You see, the problem of evil is a question of chaos and disorder and on the one hand and perfect order and justice on the other. And you look at the cross, the greatest horror, the greatest suffering in all of history is God's righteous judgment and revelation of perfect order the very means by which Job would be forgiven because of all those sacrifices he made at the beginning of the book. The cross is the answer. It's here that the serpent's finally crushed. It's here that the power of sin, death, and the devil are defeated. It's here that the Lord himself secures the right of resurrection, which is Job's hope before himself and all who trust in him. I would go to Ephesians chapter two and we'll close by reading this together. You were dead in the trespasses. You want to understand right what the reality of the order of this present age is. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is the reality under the veneer. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, he's not the order bringer only, he's the lover of our souls, a great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Jesus Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And that's the question. Have you been saved by grace? Is that still your hope? Is that your one hope? Or are you longing for a better day, like a day that you had before the hard things came? Or are you longing for a redeemer to forgive your sin and bring you to his perfect restored order in his kingdom forever? This is our one hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace on us again to grant revelation. So much work to be done here. I pray that you would do your work by your revelation, by your word in the coming week in our souls and even this morning. Grant us confidence and hope at the day of Christ Jesus and grant a new faith to the one who has not yet believed. Thank you, Lord. We trust you 
for your ongoing, rightly ordered, covenant revealed, Christ accomplished, bringing of loving order in redemption. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.